Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Keir Starmer delivered his first speech to the Labour Party conference as leader this week by making a clear break with the Jeremy Corbyn era. To the voters that thought we were unpatriotic or irresponsible, or that we look down on them. I say these simple but powerful words. We will never, under my leadership, go into an election with a manifesto that is not a serious plan for government. Welcome to a bumper, extra-long edition of Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be analysing Labour's annual jamboree on whether Starmer has met expectations. How did he take on the left and what was the core message of his keynote speech? Chief political correspondent Jim Picard will be discussing, along with our political correspondent Jasmine cameron Shaleshi. And later, we'll be turning our attention to the cost of living crunch approaching the UK this winter. While the whole country was not obsessing about Labour's internal warfare, they were concerned about not being able to fill up their cars. Political editor George Parker and economics editor Chris Giles will dissect and ask whether the government is doing the right things. But Jim and Jasmine, welcome back. Morning. Hi, thanks for having us. So we're back from Labour Party conference and I think all feeling the slight mix of tired and under the weather that you often do after such things. Our first party conference season in two years. Uh, Jim, I dread to think how many Labour conferences you've been to, but how did this one compare in terms of the fun you had, the atmosphere? So I'm, I'm very easily pleased and I just love being in Brighton. I love the atmosphere. We were in that strange hotel in the lanes, which is the, the most beautiful bit of Brighton. Went sea swimming a few times. There was some booze. We went to the notorious mirror party, didn't we? Said that was good fun. So, yeah, so in general terms, uh, it's very hard not to not to have fun in Brighton. And you know, we got to see an awful lot of Labour people over drinks and over meals. And um, it was interesting. A very different set of people to the the ones we were seeing two or three years ago. Definitely. And I think there's some very dodgy videos and pictures of you and I on the dance floor at the Mirror Party that are best kept in private consumption. Now, Jasmine, this was your first ever in-person party conference. How did it compare to what you thought it might be? I absolutely loved it. I did make the slightly fatal error of not getting enough sleep and going slightly too hard at the very beginning. But it's fine. You live and you learn. It was great. There was definitely a buzz in the air. You could tell that people were eager to be back and doing things face to face. So yeah, in terms of my expectations, it was a lot more relaxed and sort of the atmosphere is more positive than I expected. I thought there'd be loads of, you know, tension. Obviously, there's a little bit of tension you know, between the left and the centre, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But no, there was a good vibes. There was a good buzz in the air. 
it did feel like we were in our own little bubble, though, as obviously, you know, the biggest story of the week has been the fuel crisis. And, and we were talking about internal party rules. So that was slightly odd. But no, um, it was a good experience. And somebody described conferences to me as like fresh as fair, but for political nerds, of which I am one. And it definitely felt like that. Well, on that very upbeat note, let's go into the main topic of the week. So conference season is back after the pandemic and it began with all of Westminster and the UK's media trekking down to the South Coast for a sometimes warm, sometimes blustery gathering of the Labour Party, which in some ways reflects where it is politically. For Keir Starmer, this was a make or break moment. Was he in control of the party? Could he move on from the Corbyn era? And could he deliver a keynote speech that rose the occasion? The answer, at least in part, was yes to all those things within the realms of what Starmer's team wanted to achieve. And probably the standout moment that clarified this was during his main speech when there was much heckling from left-wing activists. To those who reluctantly chose the Tories because they didn't believe that our promises were credible. To the voters, to the voters, this, this is a uh, at this time on a Wednesday, it's normally the Tories that are heckling me. doesn't bother me then. <laughs> it bother me now. So, Jim, let's just begin, actually, with that speech that came at the end of the conference before we explore the general mood. And I think it sort of sums up the whole thing that we knew Keir Starmer had these, has big expectations to meet because he's never given a big speech like this to the Labour Party. I was in the conference hall for that speech, and it was probably the most dramatic speech I've seen over the past decade of going to these conferences that... There were a lot of left-wing activists who did heckle him, who tried to make their views known about the minimum wage or about their opposition to Starmer. But fundamentally, they were all drowned out by the pro-Starmer people within the party. Yeah, I mean, it was like that classic sort of judo move where you kind of, your opponents come at you and, and that in some way makes you stronger. I mean, the fact there were only a handful of these protesters and that they didn't exactly look, I suppose, sensible, if that's the right word. They certainly weren't very polite kind of sort of he could draw off that and look more statesman-like and more adult from the podium and and you're right it was probably the most um dramatic heckling we've seen for many many years at, at any conference there was a lady quite near me who was sort of carted out early on there were a few other random cat calls from sort of around the, the huge auditorium and then right at the front in the phalanx of i've no idea 10 20 30 people right in front of the leader of the opposition and they were sitting there with their arms folded right through the speech every time everyone else clapped or applauded they were there and so you could sort of feel that something was cooking and then I guess it was about halfway through that they started standing up and waving red cards and heckling on mass and yeah I mean I think the signal that sends out is definitely one of Keir Starmer facing down the Labour Party but it also sends out the signal that the Labour Party is still divided and that it does still have radical elements who may or may not be appealing to Middle England, by which I mean pr probably not that appealing. The only one thing I would say on, on the side of the hecklers, because we always try to be fair on this podcast, is that some things they were saying were true. So when, when someone heckled, it was your Brexit policy, which we just heard in that clip, it was indeed Keir Starmer's policy of having a second referendum, which helped to really damage the party in the 2019 general election. And that is something that the Conservatives will be reminding Labour of ahead of the next election. 
So Jasmine, obviously, I think Keir Starmer was trying to put some clear water with the Corbyn era, but in some way, he was slightly undermined by Angela Rayner. Now, she actually decried that heckling. This is what she told the BBC after Keir Starmer's speech. Yeah, and that's, you know, that wasn't great. It was awful. But, you know, the audience, the vast majority of the audience was very clear that they wanted to hear Keir's message. And then not only did they want to hear it, but they wanted more because they really loved what he had to say. But at the beginning of the conference, Jasmine, Angela Rayner created quite a lot of debate and controversy over comments she made at a late night reception where she described Tory opponents as scum, said that they were homophobic and they were racist and that they were sexist. And this creates a big row about the sort of tone and is this the right way to do it? And on the one hand, you could say, well, she said this before and she does kind of believe it. So that's fair enough. On the other hand, it might signal that if you're just abusing your opponents, you don't quite have the arguments that take them on. And for me, that was sort of the message of this conference, that Labour is getting itself back towards a more centrist position, but they don't have a big idea, a big new narrative arc to counter Boris Johnson's Tories. No, I think that's a very fair comment. And in regards to um, you know, Rayner's comments, I, I, I do think they were incredibly unhelpful because Labour's in this position where it has to persuade the public. There are many Labour voters who have turned away from the party in recent years, and you don't you know, persuade people to vote for you by basically insulting them or saying that they are bad people for voting for a certain party or implying that one party's good, one party's bad. And I think it really, it, it created an unnecessary distraction from the messaging of the party. And I think it's quite interesting because Starmer in the conference was clearly trying to move away from, you know, Corbynism and what that represented and sort of alluded to Blair a little bit in the speech, but didn't want to go too heavy down that path. And so we sort of came away from conference not really knowing what Starmerism is and what what it stands for and what you know what Labour looks like under his leadership we got a little bit of glimmers in that but I do think you know to be fair to him it's one party conference speech we're quite a long way away from a general election he's got a bit of time to sort of put forward his case to the voters to sort of clearly outline what he wants and how he's going to achieve it and I think it's important to remember as well that Starmer you know he's not going to be like a charismatic funny guy like we've got Johnson if we want sort of the sort of clownishness. He needs to position himself as a serious contender, someone who's a sensible, steady pair of hands to sort of guide the country. And I think the speech sort of set a good foundation for that, even if we're not entirely sure, you know, what policies and what policy areas Labour's going to pursue in the coming months and years. I take a slightly different view on that one. You know, we went into this knowing that he wants to pursue a Blairite path, certainly in terms of looking more patriotic, looking pro the British military, trying to avoid culture war stuff, basically trying to turn the clock back on the sort of Corbyn culturally and, and socially hard left element that we had in power leading Labour for a few years. And we we thought he was going to be super cautious on economy as well. And that was certainly the direction he seemed to be travelling in. But I think actually something did change this week, which probably hasn't been noticed by many people outside conference centre. I mean, I do agree with Jasmine that the rest of the country still didn't necessarily know what CARE stands for, but there were a few things we saw, such as Rachel Reeves' announcement that this a Labour government would borrow £28 billion a year to pay for a Green New Deal. You know, we're talking about nearly £300 billion over a decade. That is quite a dramatic policy. It was announced in a non-dramatic way, but it's the sort of thing that Labour activists on the left ought to be cheering from the rafters because it's one of the central things that 
young left-wingers are meant to be enthusiastic about. And I think they have been quite clear that they would, despite all the talk about fiscal responsibility, they would tax in a different way to the Tory government. So you wouldn't be seeing the next increase that the current Tory government is bringing in the spring. You would see taxes instead on the broader shoulders. And they sort of shy away from definitively saying that they would do a wealth tax, but you can see them sort of shifting in that direction. So that there is clear blue water appearing between the Conservatives and Labour. The big question, of course, is whether anyone outside Brighton has noticed. Well, I thought Rachel Reeves' speech was probably as significant as Keir Starmer's because at past Labour conferences, when John McDonnell was the shadow chancellor, the focus was just on ever more spending pledges. But she had a much bigger focus on value for money and fiscal discipline. Today, I can announce that Labour will create a new office for value for money. It will be tasked with keeping a watchful eye on how public money is spent and equipped with meaningful powers so that no government is allowed to mark its own homework. I do not take lightly the responsibility to see that public money is spent well and that public finances are kept under control. And Jim, I think this comes to the point about this the balance I'm always trying to get at this conference, that this, the spectre and shadow of Tony Blair was hanging very heavily over so. And it felt to me the first conference since 2010 when Labour was actively coming to terms with the legacy of new Labour. And the, the biggest moment was when Keir Starmer listed all the achievements of the new Labour government and the whole hall went completely wild. And it was quite a clever thing they did by getting activists to cheer new Labour without mentioning a without mentioning Tony Blair, but at the same time, still quite a lot of big spending pledges. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the thing that infuriates the Blairites and always has is the way that Ed Miliband, when he took over in 2010, distanced himself from the New Labour project you know, because he was opposed to things like the Iraq war, perhaps justifiably, but also critical of New Labour's closeness to business and its privatisation of parts of the public sector. And so obviously Ed Miliband moved the party away in one direction. Jeremy Corbyn shifted it much more dramatically, even further to the left. And so from the Blairite perspective, that has damaged Labour's reputation that you have no one in public or you certainly don't have party leaders sticking up for it in recent years. So that was significant that he got the crowd to cheer Blair without naming Blair. The sort of analogy that, that I, I think we're at is we're at a situation where if you think of it as like a lighthouse that Keir inherited in quite bad shape, he, he would sort of feel like he's fixed the stonework of the lighthouse, he's rebuilt it. You know, you have legacy issues such as the £2 million a year that the party's having to spend on legal fees, mostly related to anti-Semitism claims, but the, the structure of the lighthouse is there. The question is whether the beam emitting from the top of the lighthouse which should be travelling very far away and reaching the electorate, and they should be listening to what he's got to say. That's where the big question mark is, because you know I think he's politically where he wants to be now. Probably less Blair, definitely not Corbyn, more like Joe Biden, where you're trying to do something centrist, but you're keeping on board people who want you know extra borrowing for a Green New Deal is the obvious comparison with Biden. I just worry though that you have still have the charisma issue. And when you look at uh, where the polling is on, on Keir's leadership and how the public perceive him, it's just been steadily falling from what was actually a very good start in early 2020. And that I think is what a lot of Labour MPs are still rather worried about. 
Well, Jasmine, at this conference, you spent a lot of time scurrying around the fringe events. So these are smaller events, often in tightly packed, not very COVID secure rooms away from the main conference stage where MPs, activists, figures in the party um, debate issues. And you actually get a much better sense from that of where the mood of things are. What did you gain from that? And do you agree with Jim that there is still sort of maybe the charisma issue and also that question about just, you know, where Labour's going to head after this? Yeah, so in terms of the fringes, they were quite interesting because, you know, you heard the speeches on the main conference stage and it was all about, you know, this the party putting on a unified front and outlining the party's vision for the future. And then it was at these fringes where you sort of saw some of the tensions between, you know, various figures, ideologies within the party. So one example, for example, is um, Andy Burnham, who is currently the mayor of Greater Manchester. Now, he was a regular um, speaker at fringe events. I think he was down to speak at maybe 11 fringe events or something like that. I don't know if he made it to all of them, but he, I certainly saw him, you know, a lot in the fringes. And, you know, he was putting forward, you know, he was urging the party to put forward its own alternative to levelling up and suggesting policy suggestions. And, you know, he's a very impressive, charismatic speaker, and he was really well received at the fringes. And, you know, a couple of Labour MPs I spoke to was sort of privately frustrated that he was trying to turn some of these fringe events into the Andy Burnham show and position himself as like an alternative starmer. So there was that element of it that I noticed. And also when I went to some of the fringe events that were, you know, dominated by figures on the left, such as Jeremy Corbyn or um, John McDonald, you know, even though the rule changes have meant that the left of the party is going to be harder for them to get back into um, power, you know, people are still energetic, they're still emboldened by certain elements of Corbynism. And these fringe events really highlighted that. And there is a, a sense of frustration with Starmer's leadership with those on the left of the party and a sense of feeling that, you know, he's really moving away from their idea of what Labour should look like. And we saw that with the resignation of a shadow minister. There's all these sorts of internal tensions that you can really pick out during these fringe events. And I do agree with Jim in terms of, you know, if we look at some of the polling, certainly, you know, the Tories are still ahead which is really bizarre when you look at what's happening around the country with all these shortages and you know people queuing up for petrol. It's really striking that even if you know the Tories become slightly less popular, that doesn't necessarily mean that Labour becomes more popular. And I think they do have a long way to go to convince the electorate that you know even if the Tories aren't doing a good job, they could do a better one. And I guess, Jim, that's probably the ultimate lesson of this conference, though, is that it is Starmer's party now that whereas the left have been dominant, obviously, for the past five or six years at these conferences, they really don't have that much power anymore or influence within the party. And the fact that Starmer was able to move in the, this tonally new Labour direction. And, you know, there's a lot of sense of betrayal on that, that I went to the World Transformed, which is a kind of side fest of socialism, that for the past couple of years, there's actually been more action excitement there than in the main conference. But when I went there, it kind of felt like they were just retreading the 2019 ideas and talking about building a movement. And they called Keith Starmer, Keith Stalin for not deserving the name of Keir Hardy, who founded the Labour Party and Stalin because they seem as purging. And there was a column that came out after the conference by Owen Jones, the very notable left-wing columnist of The Guardian, that said Starmer should resign, which felt to me like a howl of rage. The fact that, you know, he had, I think most people would agree, a fairly successful conference. And yet the left, left have just realised that they're out of it now. Although we weren't entirely sure where we said whether calling him Keith Stalin was actually a compliment, given that some, <laughs> some elements of momentum still see Stalin as a much maligned political figure. But no, to, to address your question, I something I've thought about a lot is just the extent to which power 
over the Labour Party stems from the leadership. And we used to say this about Corbyn, about how just naive those Labour MPs had been who backed Corbyn in 2015 as a gesture to sort of widen the debate. Because once you grab that power at the top, you then can put your own people on the NEC, you control the National Policy Forum, you control the shadow cabinet, and, and the power just spreads from the centre incredibly fast. And the same things happened with, with Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer posed as the person who's going to unite the hard left and the moderate left. And once he got in, he's made it very, very clear which side he's actually on, which is the sort of moderate social democratic side of the party. And he's demonstrated the real ruthlessness and you know a real clarity of purpose, I suppose, if you if you want to phrase it like that, in terms of ousting all the left wings from the shadow cabinet and remoulding the party in his own image, pursuing a direction which is very familiar to those of us who remember the new Labour years. And so, yeah, the, the hard left are probably right to feel despondent about being locked out of the party because they really have been. And the rules change, which, you know, at the weekend, there was a bit of media coverage suggesting that Keir was somehow struggling to get his rules, party rules changes through, which is the opposite of what actually happened on Sunday night, which is that he managed to fix future leadership contests to the benefit of centrist MPs, and he made it a lot harder for centrist MPs to be deselected. So New Labour feel that they have got control back once again. That, however, is just the foothills of the political challenges ahead of them. Jim and Jasmine, thank you very much. Westminster may have been focused on the events in Brighton this week, but the rest of the country was far more concerned about the basic matter of getting fuel and the cost of living. Day-long waits and queues around petrol stations littered the TV screens as panic set in across the UK. There were widespread fears in Whitehall that the situation could get worse, with inflation rising and food and fuel prices set to soar, and there even are fears there might not be enough turkeys for Christmas. So what is causing all this disruption? Simon Clark, the new Chief Secretary of the Treasury, denied that any of these issues are linked to Brexit, as he told the BBC. No, I, I, I don't. I, I, I really don't accept that. I think we, we have a problem which we need to fix, but one which is shared by other European countries too. The, the idea that this is about Brexit is to is to try and take us back into 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 a, what is really, I'm afraid, quite a negative conversation around you know opportunities forgone. When if you look at the situation in Germany, if you look at the situation in Poland, if you look at the situation in France, they share these problems too. Well, George Parker, welcome back. We don't have any negative conversations on the podcast, but it has hasn't been a great week for the government. So let's begin with this fuel crisis. What's gone wrong and does the government have a grip on it? Well, what's gone wrong is um, people have gone out and um, panic bought fuel, or you could argue they've rationally gone out and bought fuel anticipating what all their fellow citizens would be doing the moment there was any sense that there was uh, going to be disruption. And inevitably, in any economy where you're running a just-in-time supply system, fuel ran out very quickly. And the danger for the government was that it looked like it was losing control of the situation. And that's a very bad place for a government to be in. I was speaking to Jack Straw, who was the Labour Home Secretary back in 2001, the last time we had something like this big fuel crisis. And he said, the danger is you just look like you've lost control. And then there's a drip, drip, drip of a series of events which confirm the impression the government doesn't have a have control of things. From the government's point of view on this particular point on the fuel crisis, there was a way out of this, which was once the people had actually filled up their cars with petrol, there's only a certain, certain number of times you could actually do that, and eventually supplies caught up with demand. 
for Labour back in 2001, as, if you recall, there was a there was actually a blockade of the terminals, which made life a bit more complicated for Tony Blair's government. But the problem facing Boris Johnson is this fuel crisis this week really is probably just the harbinger of a series of similar crises to come through the autumn. Chris Jow, it's always great to have you back on the podcast. Now, this issue about HGV drivers, there's been a lot of head scratching and debate, as we heard there from Simon Clark at the top, about how much of this is a crisis affecting Europe and other countries as the world economy starts to get going again after the coronavirus lockdown, and how much of this is to do with Brexit. What's your take on what is to blame here? The truth is, We don't know exactly what the proportions are. There's no doubt that it's not all to do with Brexit. There is a shortage of HGV drivers, and there's also a massive increase in demand for goods everywhere. So services everywhere, particularly things like consumer-facing services, restaurants, etc., are not back to where they were, and people still like buying things rather than having experiences. So there is a big demand for the distribution sector, the logistics sector, which they cannot entirely fulfil at the moment. And there's also no doubt that the UK has had this much worse than anywhere else. And it's not because the demand has been stronger here or there's more in the in the in the sense that goods are in more demand here. But it is definitively the case that our HGV lorry driver population has been falling short more than in other countries. And that creates just the sorts of pressures that can lead to a fuel shortages when people think, oh, maybe the government isn't entirely in control. Maybe there isn't going to be petrol in the pumps. I'll go and fill up now rather than be in trouble later. So that's certainly what I did last Friday. Once you get a surge in demand like that, you'll get shortages. One person who does think it's about Brexit is Olaf Scholz, who's the next likely German Chancellor. And that this is what he said this week about the UK's HGV shortage. The free movement of labour is part of the European Union, and we worked very hard to convince the British not to leave the Union. Now they decided different, and I hope that they will manage the problems coming from that, because I think it's constantly an important uh, idea of for all of us to make it happen that there will be good relations between the EU and uh, the UK. But this is a problem to be solved. Now, George, this issue about visas for drivers, the government has moved on this issue because when we introduced the new points-based immigration system after the UK had fully left the Single Market and Customs Union, the Road Hauliers Association and many others have said there's not enough visas or routes for people to come here who are lorry drivers and they called them to be added to the skilled worker list. They weren't, but the government has announced over the last week that they will add another 5,000 visas. But the figure that's been banded around a lot is there's actually a hundred thousand vacancies for drivers some of this is paperwork some of this is visas and i found the debate about this quite interesting so on the one hand you've had a lot of very pro-remain people saying oh well this is why brexit was a mistake and why we should have kept free movement and then you've seen a lot of pro-brexit people saying in fact this is actually what control of our borders looks like we've made the decision to open up more visas maybe not the levels you would have had under free movement what's your take on it well, I mean, there are lots of contributory factors behind the shortage of HGV drivers in this country, and amongst them being lots of people leaving the industry during COVID and not wanting to come back, low levels of pay, terrible conditions. But let's yeah, be absolutely frank about this. This is partly to do with Brexit. If it wasn't to do with Brexit, the government wouldn't be having to issue these 5,000 emergency visas. And I guess the problem here is that in the past, when we were members of the European Union, we 
fish in a labour pool, or employers could fish in a labour pool made up of 500 million people across Europe. Now they're fishing in a much smaller pool, about 65 million or thereabouts. And once you remove that sort of huge, flexible labour market from British employers, you're then in a situation where politicians, rather than market forces, are determining who's available to come and drive your lorry. And this is the problem we've got ourselves into, as you already alluded to there, Seb, which is the government has decided that it's going to allow 5,000 people in. Well, who knows, under normal market situation, what what number of people would have come in. But I think you can certainly argue that 5,000 won't be enough. And certainly that the allocation of these visas came too late in the day, because unfortunately, from Boris Johnson's point of view and the point of view of the whole country, we're facing a range of supply shortages through the autumn and issuing these 5,000 visas now with all the paperwork that's got to come with that, you know, it's probably a little bit too late in the day and probably too little. And the thing that I think is obviously worrying the government, Chris, is the fact that this could just be the start of a whole cost of living crisis coming late this year. That inflation has been slowly creeping up. Fuel prices are rising. Food prices are rising. And you put the whole picture together and it was actually a Tory MP who said this week they remembered the build-up to the winter of discontent in the 1970s and it feels a lot like that. Is this overwrought at all or do you think things are going to start to get pretty tricky for the government on the economic front and what does that look like? I think things are definitely going to get pretty tricky for the government on the economic front and it looks like a cost of living crisis is probably too strong a word, but a a real squeeze and a squeeze that hits particularly poorer people because fuel and energy, as in petrol, gas, electricity, all consumed disproportionately by poorer people with a possible exception of fuel. But for people who have to drive, that's definitely the case. And food likewise. And we know that global food prices are rising very sharply. So food prices are going to rise this autumn. Energy prices are going to rise. This is going to hit people really rather hard. It's the poor who are also being squeezed with the universal credit cut. And so there's really a pincer movement, both on their incomes being rather weak and their costs rising pretty fast, that even though as a whole, people in Britain aren't particularly poor, aren't particularly squeezed at the moment. It's going to fall on just the sort of people that the Conservatives are saying are now the people they want to vote for them and uh, where they gained the voters in the last election. So it's a very, very difficult autumn and winter, I think, for the government. And of course, this plays, George, into the budget and spending review, which will be coming after conference season is over. And we've obviously got a new Chief Secretary of the Treasury, Simon Clark. We heard that. What are you picking up in terms of what that's going to look like? Because Chris has written about how the public finances are going to be maybe in a better place than we would have thought. But there's still everyone wanting a lot of money. We've mentioned universal credit coming to the end there. And the government announced a £500 million temporary fund to try and ease that particular issue. But fundamentally, there's still a bit of a squeeze across most Whitehall departments. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Rishi Sunak wants to get a, keep a very tight grip on public spending through the autumn. And, and indeed, with the spending review, will set totals for the rest of this parliament. If you were speaking to Rishi Sunak now, he'd be telling you that spending is already running at a very high level. We're obviously running a huge deficit, public debt, 100% of GDP. And there's not going to be a return to austerity, but things are going to feel quite a bit tougher. And he will resist pressure from people, including Tory MPs, to continue temporary schemes like the universal credit uplift, which was costing £6 billion a year. As you mentioned, he's replaced that with an emergency scheme worth £500 million a year. But he's determined to hold hold spending down for two reasons, really. The, The most obvious one is he's worried about the huge level of debt and the possibility that 
interest rates will start to rise and cause a huge spike in the cost of servicing that debt. But there's also a political reason as well, which is that he knows that you know, he's just broken a manifesto pledge by increasing taxes to pay for health and social care. Come the next election in 2024, he will want to go into that election with a distinctive conservative proposition. And his hope is, and it's really just a hope at this stage, that if he can keep public spending under control, and if the economy bounces back more quickly from COVID than some of his official forecasts have previously predicted, then there could be some money left over by the end of this parliament to start cutting people's taxes and to return to the kind of conservatism which, frankly, he feels more comfortable with. Now, Chris, if we were lucky enough to have you sitting in the Treasury and you were advising the Chancellor looking forward to this winter with all these pressures facing, what could you actually do? Because as we know from the lesson of the 1970s when we entered that stagflation cycle, a lot of these things are outside the control of governments and beyond sort of taking the approach of Margaret Thatcher and just slashing back public spending to try and get inflation under control. Is there anything soon I could or should be doing to try and weather this better? I mean, I think you make a very good point there, Seb, that if you have a squeeze on household finances because things that households pay for generally, fuel, energy, electricity, gas, all are going up in price, and that's got nothing to do with the government. Most of these are world forces. There is very little you can do, but we are just poorer as a nation because we're importing most of these commodities or goods, and we just have to pay for them. If you as government then wanted to think, how can we offset that pain? Well, clearly, things like benefits go up in, in line with inflation. Inflation is going to be pretty high this autumn, but that will only kick in next April. So you could think of more temporary schemes, uh, so long as you make them credibly temporary, that they are ways of perhaps of giving money into people's bank accounts on a temporary basis. There is no problem for the UK government to borrow for these things. The only issue is so long as you can take it away again. It's only a problem if you can't take it away again. But I, th- I think that would be what I would be looking to think about doing if I was in the Treasury. And George, the furlough scheme is, as we mentioned, coming to an end this week. And that universal credit uplift was £20 a week. That comes to an end next week as well. And there's obviously been a lot of pressure and protest on the government to do something about this. We mentioned they brought in a temporary fund to deal with the UC uplift. How are people feeling about potential rise in unemployment? Because obviously there's still, I think, a million people on the furlough scheme when it came to an end. And I'm sure a lot of them will go back their jobs, but not all of them will as well. And it is interesting that despite that pressure and campaigns from people like Marcus Rashford, the footballer, the government's still pushing ahead with this. It doesn't want to sort of still keep in the the ear of coronavirus economics. The one bright spot, I guess, for the Treasury through the last few months, despite the the storm clouds that are brewing, is the labour market's been performing relatively well. Jobs have been created, unemployment hasn't spikes anywhere near the levels, at least so far, that people were predicting. And wages have been rising as well. And you have a situation where Grant Shapps, the transport secretary, is sort of pronouncing with some glee that you can earn £78,000 now to drive a, a milk delivery lorry. So the Treasury's view on this is that they're going to hold their nerve on the labour market. They think the labour market is actually working quite well. And with all the schemes they've got in place on training and apprenticeships, and all the rest of it, that they think that work and better paid jobs will be the way to help people through this crisis rather than more benefits through the form of, in the form of temporary uplifts and universal credit, or whatever it might be, so that work rather than welfare, they wouldn't put it quite like that, 
is the solution. And finally, Chris, we're recording this just before the start of the Conservative Party conference where all the Tories will be gathering in Manchester this week for their first in-party gathering since the 2019 election. And on the one hand, Boris Johnson will want to do a victory lap, obviously having got the election win there, the biggest majority since the 1980s, but also getting through the pandemic. And I imagine we'll hear a lot of referencing to jabs and getting out of lockdown and that sort of thing. But the most interesting action is actually going to be on the financial side, because the big story of the past two years is where the Tories have moved on spending, moved on taxation with that big rise in national insurance to pay for the NHS post-COVID, but also social care. And it's going to be interesting to see what those small state conservatives do or say there. You know, do you think there's going to be much purchase from their arguments or will people just not really take much interest in the argument people are saying on the fringes of that meeting? I think the Conservative Party is entirely changed. So they, those small state Conservatives are in a very small minority in their own party. They used to dominate the party. Now uh, there's a much greater acceptance that in the end, with an ageing society, taxes are going to be higher this decade. And it's a decade of tax rises and public spending increases. And the question for which party is going to be in government is who can manage that process best, both in terms of doing the right thing, but also managing to take the public with them. And George, finally, what are you looking forward to at the Tory party conference this year? Because in some ways, it's not really a conference that matters for Boris Johnson. We're still some quite some way from the next general election. He's just done this big reshuffle and really stamped his authority on the party with the tax rises and such like. So it's not like Keir Starmer's where we said he had big deck expectations and manage to meet them. No, I think that's that's probably true. And um, I speak to someone in number 10 this week who said that we shouldn't look out for a series of big announcements, which is often the thing you get at party conferences where people rustle around in the sock drawer trying to find an announcement they can wheel out from the podium. I think we're going to hear big speeches from the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, the Home Secretary and the Foreign Secretary. But otherwise, I think it might be a relatively low-key affair. I think the key message for Boris Johnson is that he doesn't want to be distracted by what he regards as hopefully a temporary crisis in all the things we've just been discussing and uh, whether that's fuel shortages or food price increases and focus on the big picture. And to be fair to Boris Johnson, he's made a reasonably good start since the summer, you know, dealing with the social care and health issue, this defence pact with America, the trip to the United States, preparing for the climate change summit in Glasgow in November. So he'll be looking ahead to all of those things. But as you say, it doesn't feel to me like a defining Conservative conference in quite the same way that uh, Keir Starmer's appearance last week in uh, Brighton was. Well, George and Chris, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you liked it, then subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also like nice positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.